As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So Tracy, we recently did an episode uh, with Matt Klein and we talked about essentially what a disaster German energy policy has been over the last several decades, winding up in this position where its energy usage is not only mm-hmm. heavily reliant on Russian gas, it's also really uh, not clean. And so <laughs> if, even if your if, if vision is uh, low carbon, they haven't achieved that either. Yeah, the, the worst of um, all worlds, I would say, years of underinvestment in uh, energy capacity, moving away from nuclear um, after Fukushima, increased reliance on Russian gas, which clearly is problematic now, and not actually reducing any of their carbon emissions all at the same time. Yeah, uh, kind of an extraordinarily bad combination. But you mentioned nuclear, and of course, uh, Germany has been moving away from it for some time. But it does feel that even prior to the recent energy price spike, or even prior to this sort of heightened awareness on the German energy situation specifically, there does seem to be a sort of, uh, I don't know, rethinking or some sort of turn in people sort of reconsidering how much nuclear has been shut down over the last several years, how little new nuclear has been built, and whether that's been wise. Yeah, it's definitely been an ongoing debate. But I have to admit, this is something, I mean, I was aware that nuclear had fallen out of favor, but I cannot remember when that moment actually happened and what exactly the process was. So obviously Fukushima happened in Japan and there's a lot of concerns around that. But I'm very, very interested in how nuclear sort of lost the public debate, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, me too. And I think obviously, look, you have a handful of well-known either disasters or near near disasters. But it, it it is interesting that at a time when there's so much interest in reducing carbon emissions, you know, so much has been focused on wind, mm-hmm. solar, maybe uh, hydropower, very little about uh, how nuclear uh, could be part of the solution. Right. And at the same time, we have in recent years really seen some of the weaknesses or the downsides yes. in certain renewables. So, yes. you know, days when there isn't enough wind, we just don't have energy in some parts of the world, days when there isn't enough sun. Uh, we've seen that in places like the UK and yeah. also in Texas. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so obviously uh, wind and solar can at times produce incredibly cheap electricity, but it's intermittent 
and we don't have the battery technology to store it mm. when it's really sunny. As you mentioned, uh, I think it was in November or December, there are all these days in Europe and it's like the wind just wasn't blowing. And so <laughs> then energy prices uh, soar because what can you do? And so whether it's in the U.S. where we've had a number of uh, energy grid blackouts, we saw that in Texas last year, whether it's Europe where the price of electricity is soaring, a rethink of nuclear. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited about our guest. We're going to get the case for nuclear investment today. I'm super excited about our guest. We're going to be speaking with Meredith Angwin. She is the author of the book, Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. Absolutely fascinating book, basically talking about uh, grid policy. uh, And somehow it's incredibly readable. It's actually a page turner, even though the topic is very dense and arcane. Meredith has a gift for taking what is highly technical and making it uh, extremely compelling. And she is also a a pro-nuclear activist in some way and thinks it is the solution to many of our energy questions prior to uh, writing the book. She has been for several years a researcher uh, worker in the utility industry on our power problems. So, uh, Meredith, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me, and I'm so happy to be talking to you and to Tracy. Meredith, I-, I loved your book. And like I said, and other people on Twitter said the same thing. There's like, how is a book that is on such a technical topic, regulatory policies of the grid, so readable? And I mean, it is a page turner somehow. But why don't you just give us a little bit of your background prior to writing the book, what is your experience within the utility and energy industry? Well, I was always very interested in chemistry. I became a chemist and I was also interested in geology. And uh, I I was working toward my PhD at University of Chicago. I did not complete it. I have a master's and I was, uh, you know, and uh, so forth. But um, it was in a in mineral chemistry. And when I began thinking about what you do with mineral chemistry when I got out of school, uh, I was also interested in geothermal energy. And so I began uh, researching how could I work in geothermal? Uh, I, I, I learned enough to be actually getting some little contracts in geothermal. And uh, then I got a job uh, at a company that wanted to get into geothermal, but was working on nitrogen oxide pollution, which is a really big problem. And so I was working on nitrogen oxide pollution, including uh, some patents. Uh, nitrogen oxides uh, are one of the prime ingredients in smog. And mm. so I, I I was working on that. And then I moved over to the Electric Power Research Institute, where I was uh, in geothermal energy. So I felt I had finally achieved what I had wanted to achieve by being in uh, uh, geothermal energy. But then uh, when I was in the research group that was in renewables, I began to see sort of, I don't know, the dark side of renewables, not so much the dark side as the fact that they really weren't up to the the level of a lift that people were claiming they would have and that when you wanted to put in a renewable, people objected. And I, that astonished me that the uh, people were trying to stop renewable development. How could they do this? But at any rate, um, I began working with on some similar corrosion issues with uh, a group that was working in nuclear, and I began to get to know them. Now, I didn't have anything 
I wasn't against nuclear, but I wasn't I wasn't like drawn to it particularly. Right. But then when I began working with them, I began to realize its advantages, and I switched over to the nuclear group. Later on, I ran a consulting company about uh, basically about uh, a corrosion control and and water chemistry in nuclear plants. And uh, then when I sort of semi-retired. I began supporting our local nuclear plant, Vermont Yankee, which led me into trying to understand how Vermont Yankee interacted with the people who ruled the grid, and that eventually led to the book Shorting the Grid. To note, it's funny, uh, I actually used to live in Brattleboro, Vermont, uh, a couple miles away from the Vermont Yankee nuclear plant, which I remember tons of debate about it at the time and lots of local activists wanting to shut it down. And now it did get shut down. But it's fun. You know, I, did, I, I remember this debate very well. Well, can we talk a little bit more about that? So, you know, I mentioned this in the intro, the idea of nuclear sort of losing public opinion. How did that happen exactly? And how do the alleged downsides stack up against the opportunities or, or the upsides of nuclear power as you as you learned about them? Boy, that is a really difficult question that there are many books about. Uh, like there's a book called The Rise of Nuclear Fear. Um, one of the things is that people had it mixed in their minds with nuclear weapons. What I'm trying to say is that there are plenty of states like uh, North Korea with nuclear weapons, but no nuclear power plants. And there are plenty of states like United Arab Emirates with nuclear power plants and no nuclear weapons. I mean, they don't go together as like, if you've got one, then you've got the other. And the whole idea that someone would steal stuff from a nuclear power plant to make a weapon is so absurd. It just, I mean, the things that are in nuclear power plants are very big, very radioactive, and the plants are well guarded. So, I mean, you would have to drive some kind of a special vehicle. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not like an easy thing to imagine. So I don't like to even go into that very much because it's, it, it is, it's all so theoretical. It, it's just not reasonable. But my mother was very active in, in, in band the bomb groups and, and, but she wasn't against nuclear, but when power, but when, the bomb actually got banned, I think some of those groups just morphed on over, like, oh, well, well, let's go after the nuclear plants now. It wasn't reasoned. It was just sort of like, let's do the next step. We were worried about fallout, and now we have these plants, so we'll go after them. And, and, and the fact that they're not releasing anything into the environment, we're not going to worry about that part. They could. There's this whole word could. They could. They could. If you have a, a elaborate enough scenario, they could. Why do you talk about that a little bit further? And actually, of course, you know, we're talking about Europe. Uh, the other night, I think it was, I think it was last Thursday. We were recording this uh, March tenth, so I think a week ago. One of the scarier headlines that has come out of the Russia invasion of Ukraine. All the headlines are awful, but there was the uh, concern about this particular nuclear plant. There was a report about a fire, and then everyone was uh, debating how terrible could this be? Could this be a Fukushima or Chernobyl or something like that? And then the people who actually knew what they were talking about said, no, that's a completely unrealistic scenario. This is not like that at all. But can you give us like the basic reasons? Like, okay, why isn't a nuclear power plant as sort of major security risk, if it could catch fire or something like that. Like, why did the people who seem to understand nuclear the most, they did not seem particularly worried about that risk in that situation? 
Well, it's a, a standard kind of uh, plant. It's a, a light water reactor. It's not like the Chernobyl plants. The Chernobyl plants, every, every nuclear plant has to have a way to slow down the neutrons, and that's called the moderator. And in uh, American plants, that's, that's water. And um, in the Russian plant, it was graphite. So when the Russian plant began overheating, the graphite began burning. Uh, it, it was just an incredible mess, the Chernobyl one. But the ones that are operating now in Russia, they're practically like the American plants. They're, um, they're like uh, pressurized water reactors. There's uh, three levels of water uh, safety between them and... Uh, any release to the environment. What I'm trying to say is you have the pressurized water that surrounds the reactor core, then that water goes into uh, loops within a steam generator. That steam generator makes steam, which turns the turbine, right. but it, 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 and then it doesn't, it, it, is, it isn't the same water that went through the reactor core. It's, as a matter of fact, incredibly pure water. A very, a, no expense is spared to make that water incredibly pure. And uh, the reason is that you don't want it depositing things on these high-speed turbines. And then as it comes out of the turbines, it's cooled by a, a, a tertiary loop which actually is a water that goes through a cooling tower or something, which is out in the environment. But at that point, it's like three three steps away from, from the reactor. So uh, people kept imagining all these scenarios, uh, which, which are, are unreasonable, of the reactor uh, having some huge problem that causes this, this fast release, which actually did happen at Chernobyl, but that was because it was a completely different plant. Another thing I have to say is Chernobyl did not have a containment structure around it. So anything that was released was immediately released. These plants have containment structures around the uh, the reactor steam generator uh, area that can be hit by, like, missiles. I mean, really, they, they run uh, – they, they're so strong they can be hit by – trains, uh, missiles, uh, I, I don't know how big a missile, yeah. I suppose, if it was a, but, but, you know, they, they're, they're tested, Midwestern ones are tested with uh, utility poles flung against them as if there was a tornado. I mean, so the, the whole idea that, that these things are just on the verge of something horrible happening is really not reasonable and it is but as i say i think that the people were like oh we've banned the bomb let's ban the other nuclear stuff it's all horrible as a leading real estate manager principal asset management harnesses the power of a 360 degree perspective delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market giving our clients an exclusive advantage principal asset management actively invested learn more at principalam.com Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Aside from safety, were there any other constraints or are there any other constraints on building out nuclear capacity? Because, I mean, if there's one thing I learned from SimCity, it's that nuclear power plants are extremely expensive compared to all other uh, forms of power. But obviously, that's that might be out of date. But, you know, are there financial constraints or policy constraints that impact investment in nuclear power? Well, there are. At this point... Nuclear plants are more expensive and and slower to build than other types of plants. And they're usually compared with um, combined cycle plants, uh, natural gas plants, because very few people are building coal plants anymore, except, of course, in many places in the world, but not in America. Uh, people are building coal plants in China and in India, but they're not building them in America. So we, we compare our nuclear plants to natural gas plants, and they're much more expensive. However, nuclear fuel tends to be uh, a lot less expensive and a lot more reliable than the fuel for the natural gas plants. And people do a comparison with a wind turbine, whatever. Wind turbines aren't even supposed to last more than 25 years. Nuclear plants can last 60 years, uh, 80 years, whatever. How often do you have to build it becomes a question with, with, with many of the types of plants. So can you actually do the math a little bit more for us? Like, what are the you know uh, a region is thinking about investing a like how much how long does it, would it take to build a nuclear plant versus a uh, something that's uh, powered more by natural gas and another important thing you talk about in your book is that a nuclear plant holds uh, the fuel on site whereas natural gas is real time it doesn't store the gas on site it needs it just in time and so if there's any sort of pipeline disruption the natural gas plant is useless. But talk about the upfront costs of the two and then like how it plays out over time in your view, such that uh, the nuclear is the better investment. Well, you know, this isn't my major area of expertise about investing in nuclear. I'm, I'm sorry to say that. I will say that nuclear plants have had a tendency to be um, 
estimated at five billion and come in at ten billion. Right. But and meanwhile, uh, natural gas plants uh, are estimated at uh, five hundred thousand and come in at, at, at a million and a half or something. No, not a million and a half. Excuse me, five hundred a billion and a half. Yeah, that would, that would be, be really cheap. cheap. I would say that less than yeah. a billion natural gas. <laughs> so, um, it, but the thing is that with a natural gas plant, uh, you have to have a fuel supplied uh, all the time. It just keeps coming in over the pipeline. And sometimes uh, that's okay. And sometimes it's not okay. Like right in the winter in the Northeast, we actually are, are dependent on LNG deliveries, just like we were Singapore or something, uh, to get enough natural gas into our pipelines for winter use. And nuclear stores about 18 months of fuel on site. So uh, some disruption in the price of fuel or uh, anything like that, you, you've got a lot of time to try and figure out what to, to do about it. Well, with natural gas, they say it's now X price, you're paying it. <laughs> That's it. Mm. Well, you're either paying it or refusing to accept it, whichever. Is that the main difference that you see between uh, nuclear power and renewables? It's the, I, I guess, the reliability of power generation and the idea that you can build up, you know, 18 months of capacity, as you put it, and not really have to worry about it versus if you have something like wind or solar, it's much more unpredictable. Oh, yeah, that's very important. Now, one of the things is that uh, grid reliability is dismissed by people who are in favor of, you know, like, oh, we'll get to 100% renewables. We'll figure out how to make them reliable. It won't take that much. Uh, but when you get right down to it, what most people want in a grid is reliability. They want the lights to go on when they turn on the lights. They want the um, the water treatment plant to keep operating. They want, uh, you know, uh, all the things that the grid uh, gives us uh, to keep happening. And if they're interrupted a lot, this is very, very bad. And, and so what happens is that nuclear plants, um, let me give you an example. The thing is, it's very hard to talk about natural gas in terms of size because it's a gas. Nobody thinks of it in terms of size. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to compare a Vermont Yankee nuclear plant with Merrimack Station, which is not far away. It's down in New Hampshire. Merrimack Station is a coal plant and it's 400 uh, megawatts. And Vermont Yankee was a nuclear plant at 600 megawatts. So Vermont Yankee would have uh, a semi pull up every 18 months with uh, a new load of fuel. Okay, one semi, maybe they took two sometimes, I don't know, with a new load of fuel. I've often thought that uh, since there were several hundred people working at the plant, they probably had uh, more deliveries of paper products of various kinds from, huh. from, from <laughs> than, than fuel. Meanwhile, over at uh, Merrimack Station, you have uh, 400 megawatts. I did the calculation several times over to try and figure it out. Uh, they told me at the station that it was 40 100-ton uh, rail hopper cars of coal per day. I went through a whole calculation on the probable heat rate and came up with 39 hopper cars per day. So you see, the thing is, they they are taking delivery of a lot of coal every day to run that station. 
And of course, when you're delivering a lot of things, it's uh, it can be interrupted. Now, the thing that I wanted to say is that uh, if you look at uh, a 400 megawatt uh, natural uh, gas plant, it is burning not 40 cars of coal because the H2 in the natural gas also burns. Say it's burning 20 cars of coal a day. It isn't coal, it, it's carbon, you see. But at least you can have a visual then. Right. You can have a visual that the natural gas plant is getting 20 uh, coal cars full of carbon delivered to it hmm. every day. You see, we can't have that division. Somebody will say, oh, it's got MMCC, so many million cubic feet. I, I don't, I can't imagine a million cubic feet of a gas and what, what happens. And that's beyond me. It's it's much easier to just think if it were coal, then how much would this be? How much would you see showing up at the plant? And let's look at the carbon for a moment. You get these 40 coal plants going to Merrimack Station, and then they combine with oxygen in the air to make carbon dioxide, which is, because it's combined, it's heavier than, than the coal was. So if you had to carry the carbon dioxide away in coal cars, you would be using um, more than twice as many coal cars to carry it away. So that's something to think about. I keep trying to figure out how to express, the, because otherwise it's so theoretical. People think, oh, yeah, uh, it come, we've got million cubic feet. Uh, nobody goes like, how much does that weigh? How much space would it take up? It's a gas. Right. So I, I try to put it in terms of if it were coal, if it were visible, if it had to be delivered and taken away in railroad cars, this is what it'd be like. That's a really interesting way to think about it. Let's go back to conventional renewables and the, the two renewables uh, that people have in their mind when they hear renewables are obviously wind and solar, and they inspire a lot of very good feelings. They do not uh, emit carbon. Uh, when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing, electricity is extremely uh, cheap. It, I get perhaps the marginal cost of that electricity is essentially free. What is, uh, and you talk about the a lot in your book, but what is like the basic flaw? Like what is the argument against just Let's keep ramping up wind. Let's keep, uh, you know, there's going to be this big new wind farm out, off of New York. There's going to be some wind. Why not just continue to place uh, turbines and uh, panels on every roof and every uh, uh, on every mountain ridge we can find? Okay, let me let me talk about why that isn't a reasonable way of looking sure. at it. The first thing is, it's just a very simple example. Um People go to a fancy restaurant, say, and the restaurant says, we run 100% on renewable electricity here. Right. And the people say, oh, this is great. We're not only having a great meal at 10 at night, but we are also on renewable electricity. Well, actually, they what the restaurant has done is it hadn't put up a bunch. Of, it may have some, some solar panels, but it's not running off the solar panels uh, at 10 at night. What it is doing is it's buying renewable energy certificates or it is net metering. That is, it produces more solar at two and it sells it to the grid and then it buys fossil from the grid at 10 at night. And so people get they get misled. They're at this restaurant and it's 100 percent. 100% renewables, and they're thinking, 
well, everybody can do this. If they can do it, we should be able to do it. Okay, so that's the simple misleading thing. The, the, the more formal statement would have to be that renewables add to the overall system costs of the grid. For one thing, uh, you have to back have something to back them up. Now, you know, I, I really, I don't think batteries are ever going to do it, but that's a whole nother talk uh, and, and, and so forth. But whether you decide it's batteries or it's, or it's gas fire plants or it's a pump storage device, okay, something has to be available when the, um, when the renewables are not available. And so that means that you have to have redundancy on the grid, and that redundancy doesn't go into the cost of when the wind turbine is actually making wind. It, it, it goes into the sort of the overhead cost of the whole grid. So what happens is that people don't understand that. They say, well, the Wind turbines are really cheap, right? And, and as long as you've got an equal amount of install capacity that you can actually call on, okay, whether it's fossil, whether it's whether it's nuclear, whether it's whether it's a, a pump storage, whether it's a battery, you don't have a reliable grid. And and so people don't realize that, for example, if if the grid was all what I would call traditional plants, nuclear, coal, gas. Uh, hydro, then a grid will usually try to have reserve capacity of, I don't know, 20%. So, for example, if the highest amount of uh, uh, kilowatts being used at a time is something, then the grid will have installed capacity of that amount plus 20%. So our grid, for example, in New England it runs about uh, on a nice day, not a, a fierce day, uh, not a very cold day, very hot day. It's running around 14 um, gigawatts at peak, okay, or 15. Well, then, it, 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 and, but on a very cold day, it'll run 20 gigawatts. So we have to have 23 gigawatts installed capacity so that if it's a very cold day or a very hot day and it's running 20 gigawatts and some of the plants go offline, then we still have that three gigawatts to make up for it, you know? So right. we're all set. But if you, if those 20 gigawatts were wind and solar, we have to have another 20 gigawatts of something that we can call on when the wind and solar aren't available. Hmm. And so that's an immense cost, the redundancy cost. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. 
you need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. I have, a, I guess, a hypothetical question, um, but it's related to policy and the decision about who chooses the actual mix of energy mm. in our world. So, you know, let's say tomorrow everyone woke up and looked at their Bloomberg terminal and saw that you know, the oil price was at $200 per barrel or $300 per barrel and gas prices were still spiking. And everyone decided, okay, we want to change up our energy mix. We want to do more nuclear, for instance. How does that, how would that public sentiment actually feed through into additional investment Mm. into nuclear power? Because it feels like you know, I just moved back to New York and I've signed up with Con Edison. Like, it certainly feels like I don't have much of a choice in what type of energy is delivered to me um, and, and who provides it. So I, I'm just curious, like, what actually changes if the world starts accepting nuclear power? Who actually makes the decision saying, OK, we're going to build a power plant here or we're going to add capacity to existing power plants? OK, now, if you are in an area that is not run by auctions, if you're in a traditional vertically integrated area, the state, with permission from FERC for whatever issues might be coming up, the state decides on its resource mix. And it writes a something called an integrated resource plan, which it presents to its public utilities commission. And then uh, if the public utility says, yes, this is the right thing to do, then things are put in place to do the siting, to do the permits, uh, to to raise the money and so forth and so on. Now, the thing is that in the auction areas, which I call RTO areas, which is regional transmission organization, uh, and New York is very interesting because it's a state and a RTO. So, but let's look at New England instead because New England is um, a mixture uh, of many states run by an RTO uh, and 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 so forth. So every state supposedly, if you ask the 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 head of our RTO, 
uh, what, what about the resource mix? He would say the states decide on the resource mix. We don't have any particular ability to decide on the resource mix. But what it boils down to is in the RTO, it's only the plants that have um, low prices uh, uh, for the next kilowatt hour, low marginal costs, and 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 can't not very high capital costs that actually can get built in an RTO system. So even if the state puts together an integrated resource plan that says we will we are going to build a nuclear plant here. The the nuclear plant builders will say, are you kidding me? We're, the way the uh, auctions are set up, we'll never make a living at this. Hmm. And, and, and so one of the problems is that, and, and, and this is why I named my book Shorting the Grid. It was an homage to the big short, because in the big short, uh, the mortgages, which were not particularly good mortgages, liars mortgages, right? It didn't matter. They still made money. Uh, so the value of the mortgage really uh, didn't uh, didn't affect things. And sure enough, pretty soon, because you had all these complicated uh, debt obligations and collateralized this and collateral. But what I'm trying to say is when you got through all that complexity, then, you know, the value of the mortgage didn't matter. And so in, in the RTO areas, the value of the power to the grid doesn't matter as much as long as it, it, it meets certain criteria for the auctions. So it's very, very similar to the situation. As a matter of fact, a power plant, a, a renewable plant is the is most likely to actually make money on the grid because it gets uh, tax, it gets uh, subsidies and tax credits, and it doesn't have to rely on the auctions. As a matter of fact, some of those plants bid in saying we'll pay you to take our power this was that was a really striking aspect of your book that there are times in which the wind is you know the wind is blowing so much or the sun is shining that actually uh you know the the uh the renewable generators can actually bid to get their electricity used at negative prices because of the subsidies or the sale of credits. And in fact, your book in general talks about uh, just how insanely complicated electricity auctions are. And it's sort of mind boggling, but you like walk through it all. But can you just give the sort of simple reason why in a sort of uh, auction based electricity system, the opposite of vert vertically integrated um, nuclear, despite its advantages and reliability is not economical for someone to invest in building? Well, the, one of the things is that the nuclear plant is going to have to compete with plants on the auctions that will be um, bidding in at like negative one cent and so forth. So the overall price on the auction will be lowered by those plants, uh, sometimes even all the way to negative. And now one of the reasons that the the nuclear plant is also in trouble uh, in this auction system is that in the auction system tends to favor uh, renewables. And that means that if the sun is shining, they may want the nuclear plant to like go offline and make room for the solar. And nuclear plants are, are wonderful. They are not 
particularly flexible. Now, you might say, oh, see, there's a disadvantage to them. But I'm I'm telling you, let's say you're taking a car trip and you see a semi. The semi is carrying a lot of goods and it is carrying it, you know, it it, it is efficient. There's one or two drivers and it's carrying all these goods. Is it flexible? Can it pass you? Can it go up a hill quickly? Can it stop on a dime? No, it's basically designed to be very efficient at carrying load forward and so forth. That's what the nuclear plants are designed for. And so um, if they're being forced off the grid because the wind is blowing or because the, the it's very, very hard on them. And they, they, they will tend to have shorter life expectancies because of the the changes that they're forced to do. I have another basic question, um, given that I haven't read the book, but why, <laughs> why were, and I, I plan to after this conversation, but why was everything set up in this way? Like, why was a system created in which renewables seem to benefit from the way auctions are actually conducted um, versus something that would incentivize nuclear? Well, let's uh, look back to why the whole RTO system happened. But the thing was that in the vertically integrated systems, uh, the idea was that if a company invested in a power plant, it would get a rate of return on that investment from the, the people to whom it sold the power. And so that company was a widow's and orphan stock. It wasn't going to have a, a huge uh, a problem. Uh, it was going to get its rate of return. Now, um, when we, people looked at this, it was clear to some people uh, and uh, that this was uh, just an incentive to gold plate the grid. The more the company could invest, the more it got paid. It didn't have a particular uh, interest in, in saving money. So people said, what we have to do is get some kind of market force in here to get that company to understand that saving money is important. And uh, so the RTO system, the auctions, were supposed to do that, but they didn't. And and why didn't they is a very elaborate uh, uh, story uh, having to do with, uh, uh, you know, the shale gas revolution, uh, huge overruns on nuclear plants, the romance, if you pardon me saying so, the romance of we can get everything we need from the sun and the wind, uh, this kind of bucolic, you know, ideal. And, uh, and, and some of the people were... Uh, I think it was Armour Levins who the quote was that if there was a clean source of power that was readily available, they they would destroy things with it. You know, the idea is that lots of energy isn't good. The fact that there's limited energy from renewables, that'll keep uh, humankind on the straight and narrow. So this is important. You talk about some of the challenges of the vertically integrated price model, where if your return is cost plus X then that gives you an incentive to just increase the cost. And so there are obvious impulses to find some sort of market mechanism to avoid that. You know, one of the things that I remember from about a decade ago is the Pickens plan. And uh, T. Boone Pickens, of course, a well-known oil and gas man who also was very into wind power. And something that you explain a lot is uh, the idea of 
the renewable uh, industries want more natural gas and they complement each other very well and so, or in theory they do. Can you explain that a little bit further? How renewables and natural gas sort of dovetail with each other from an industrial business perspective? Oh yes, absolutely. One of, one of the things is that renewables go on and off when they want to and they they need something that can that can uh, ramp up and down quickly to to, to even out the uh, reliability of the grid. Now, there are two things that can ramp up quickly to even out the reliability of the grid. Those two things are natural gas and uh, hydro. Um, coal plants and nuclear plants can actually load follow. I mean, that is, they, they can go up in the middle of the day and come down at the end of the day. Right. What they can't right. do is, is, is take care of the spikiness of the wind is up, the wind is down. Uh, the, the sun is shining, whoops, the front went by, clouds came by, and in five minutes, five minutes uh, it's gone from lots of uh, solar to, like, uh, why is it so gloomy out there? Uh, and, and so natural gas is the partner for this. It's the partner that can that can fill in those gaps. Now, hydro could fill in those gaps too, but let's face it, people are taking out more dams than they're putting in, at least in my area. I can't imagine anywhere in the country someone would say, we're going to build another dam the size of a Grand Coulee on this river uh, and, and, and not meet an absolute storm of opposition. And in all honesty, back in the day, that was actually a Sierra Club slogan. Right. Adams want dams. Huh. So with everything that's going on in the world, what's your gut instinct on whether or not we are going to see a ramping up of investment in nuclear power and a rethink on the desirability of nuclear versus something like solar or wind? I think the chances are very good for that. But I'm not sure that they're good enough in this country. What I mean by that is in other countries, uh, they will look at the fact that um, France doesn't have a single, uh, I don't, it might have one, I don't know, a natural gas fired plant. It's a nuclear, you know? And, uh, and, and so uh, France isn't particularly uh, concerned with what is happening in the Ukraine, except as a, a European nature, nation that doesn't want to see that amount of suffering. But in terms of like, will they turn off our power? They're not, they're not worried about that. So other people are going to begin to take energy security 18 months on site. You can't be turned off by, by somebody at the drop of a hat just because he's decided to start a war. I think that people are going to take it more seriously. Now, people are already taking it seriously in other parts of the world. Uh, nuclear plant builds have been going on in the Middle East and have been going on in, 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 in China. But in America, we, we haven't done that. We, just, we have just a, a minute or two left before we have to wrap. But let's say, you know, public opinion were to change on nuclear. Let's say just uh, in the U.S., where would, what would the policy change have to be to make it happen? Would it be something at the federal government? Would it be at the state level? Like, obviously, as you explained, the current RTO auction model does not augur well for nuclear. What would have to change? And then real quickly, 
storage is the other big thing, and we haven't touched on it, but people talk about, well, no no one wants the storage in their backyard. You know, you uh, in Vermont, uh, probably people don't want the nuclear stored, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, the rolling green hills or under the organic apple farm. So just real quickly, can you touch on, A, where the policy impulse would have to change and how to deal with uh, the fact that it's still extremely costly and by and large not desirable to uh, live near uh, nuclear storage? Okay, uh, basically, um, in terms of policy changes, I think that we have to begin looking at systems costs. Because if you look at an uh, inexpensive wind turbine and you don't look at the fact that the natural gas plant, which will pay whatever is on offer for the natural gas, has to be available to back it up, then you think that wind turbine's pretty cheap. Uh, but if you look at the system cost, you will realize that no, it isn't. Um, and uh, then in terms of uh, storage, oh, I, I don't know. I, 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 get, I get very uh, concerned with people who are so concerned with storage. I mean, the material that is being stored is a ceramic. It's not a goo like in, in The Simpsons. Right. It's a ceramic. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's a dangerous substance. Okay, well, fine, you know. And somebody says, well, you know, there's enough whatever at that nuclear plant to kill everybody in the state. And I'm saying, yeah, you know, there's enough stuff under my kitchen sink to kill everybody in the family. The question is, what I mean is, you know, like uh, household uh, right. household cleaners. Right. <laughs> well, um, but the thing is not, is there enough, but is it well contained? Is it something likely to leak? And frankly, ceramics are the least likely to leak. <laughs> well, Meredith, this is a uh, huge, sprawling, fascinating topic. It's already given me like ideas for three or four new episodes that we have to follow on. I definitely suggest people check out your book, Shorting the Grid. Thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Thank you. Tracy, I found that extremely interesting. I do think like at this core thing, I... Uh, Meredith used the word bucolic when mm -hmm. describing the allure of solar and wind. And I thought that was very apt. You could see the appeal. But when you think about the redundancy that has to be built, the law, you know, the difficulty of batteries and so forth, uh, you can see why it's not it's certainly not a silver bullet. Yeah. Um, you mentioned bucolic. I was thinking about like all the uh, responsibility that maybe pop culture has to yeah. bear uh you know meredith mentioned the simpsons the simpsons and i was also thinking about back to the future yeah. and like the doctor stealing a bunch of plutonium and everyone getting it in their heads in the 1980s that you know this is something that can be stolen and terrorists use it and stuff like that um but it is interesting i mean a i i, I need to read that other book that Meredith mentioned as well about how nuclear lost the public policy debate. Yeah. But it's just going to be fascinating to see whether or not the turnaround actually happens given current events. And then B, if there is a turnaround in public sentiment, how feasible that actually is given the right. current structure to implement. Yeah, there's a lot we have to do. So we have to have an episode with someone who is very pro wind and solar and believes it really is the solution. We absolutely have to do a batteries, batteries. episode because of both cars and then also grid level storage is going to be like a huge question to like the further ramping up of uh, renewables. There's a lot more to do. I think, I mean, this is going to be like our huge theme, I think, for 2022. Energy, There's like yeah. so many different energy questions 
uh, coming through. But I thought it was very helpful and uh, people really should uh, check out the book. Yeah. All right. Well, more to come on this subject. But in the meantime, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Definitely check out our guest, Meredith Angwin. She is at Meredith Angwin. Big thanks to our producers, Magnus Henriksen and Colin Tipton. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.